we have, we have beautiful texts. And I'm going to be honest to tell you, I'm going to walk you through a bit of my journey in regards to this. Because a lot of what we're looking at today is, well, and a lot of Deuteronomy is review. It's important to note that the purpose behind a lot of this, and we'll kind of get into context here, is that there is a second generation standing at the same place that was sort of, in essence, the shore of failure for, the, for their parents, their uncles, their aunts, their nans. And all of a sudden now, God is reiterating it. And I want to warn you, here's the danger, and it's, it's been my prayer in this. As I kind of read through it, I'm kind of like, well, we'll get to six, because chapter six is really like kind of the heart of it. It's the gist. There's that beautiful emotional apex, the Shema, Shema, Israel, the hero of Israel, the Lord God is one, and what he really desires. And then what happens is you skate right through a whole chapter, and God goes, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the problem. Is can you imagine being an entire generation that was a teenager hearing the law the first time and then God's reiterating it now and they're like, yeah, 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 I heard this when I was a teenager. Oh, that old stuff. And I don't want to be guilty of that. And there is such beautiful richness in this. So, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Once you get it, open it up to Deuteronomy 4 because we pick up at the end of the previous chapter. We're not going to miss any verses. We don't skip anything here. We pick it up, by the way, in verse 41. So take a look at that with me. Chapter 4, verse 41. It says this. Then Moses set apart three cities on this side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun, that the manslayer might flee there who kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in time past, and that by fleeing to one of these cities he might live. Say these with me, if you would, just for fun. You could say you spoke Hebrew today. Bezer. That was kind of fun. It, by the way, means inaccessible spot. In the wilderness or the plateau of the Reubenites. Ramot. Try it. Ramot. It's almost like remote, which is actually a good name for it because it means heights or literally like is in remote, a remote area. So remote. And then Golan. Golan means exiled in Bashan of the Manassites. Now, this is the law in which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes and the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt on this side of the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor. In the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon, whom Moses, and talk about a run-on sentence, and the children of Israel defeated after they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan, toward the rising of the sun from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Anon, even to Mount Sihon, which is Hermon. And all the plain of the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of Araba, Sea of Araba, below the slopes of Pisgah. Now read with me chapter 5. All of that, in essence, will give us introduction to this. And Moses called all Israel, and he said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. That's Mount Sinai, by the way. And the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain. From the midst of the fire, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. 
or up the mountain. He said, and now he starts reiterating the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Shabbat, the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor your, any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is in your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land in which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, nor shall you desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey. Let's just make it simple. Or anything that is your neighbor's. These are the words... The Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain in the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added, No more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. The original, take two tablets and call me in the morning. It's right there. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man and ye still lives yet. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more than we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Well, then you go near then and hear all the words that the Lord God may say and tell us. All that the Lord our God says to you, and we will hear and do it. Now, you hear the humor in that, right? Because what Moses is reiterating is going, all the people are looking and going, hey, if any of us hear another word, we'll probably die, so you should go up there. So that he could go up and die? Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments in which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land that I am giving them to possess. Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, 
You shall walk in the ways in which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land in which you shall possess. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege of what you're going to do in this time. I pray for that fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Keep me clear and on target, focused. Take my lips and attach them to your heart, God. That this would be so much more than just time reading a book, getting God's information. But that today, in this room, we could be transformed. So please have your way. Please minister profoundly. Please, Lord, do your work now, we pray. I commit this time to you, Lord. And pray now that you would speak fluent us, that every one of us will be personally spoken to the way we need to be spoken to today. God, have your way, I pray. Truly and radically administer. So, Lord, it's yours now. Have your way. Jesus, be exalted. Save, encourage, transform. Equip, encourage, And may we have so much fun in your word every moment. Let your word burst open and come alive and grab a hold of us now. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true, because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say always. Leading up to this text, if you remember, God is now given us this beautiful symphony of who he was. And in each of those, a re, sort of a, a responsibility to that revelation of who he is. He told us he already was. He already told us he was a jealous God. And in essence, that he burns hot for us. And as a result of that, we should obey and be faithful. We should hear his word, genuinely listen, genuinely obey. Don't add, don't take away from it. Don't turn one side or the other. But rather that we should genuinely hear him and follow him. Because he's jealous, we are to be faithful in return. Second, because he's merciful, he's committed even when I'm not. And if I fall or fail or fracture, I will never be forsaken because he points me to the future and tells me my future is secure because he's merciful. My present I'm responsible for because he is jealous. But he also told me that he was exclusive. He says, look at your past. And in your past... See that I and I alone am God. Not only is he jealous, not only is he merciful, but he is also exclusive. Did anyone else get you out of Egypt? Anyone else speak to you from a fire? Anyone else instruct you and lead you and remove you and rescue you? Only me. Only me. Not a club, not an institution, not a program, but me and me alone. Never forget that. It's interesting if you think about it. You can't necessarily be responsible for your future or your past. There's nothing you can do to change your past. And the only way to change your future, to be honest, is to be responsible for your present. And it's interesting because that's the way he lays this out. Though you can't change your past, you can look back and see that I and I alone am God. And if you look at me, what you'll see is a trail of my care and love and mercy and deliverance. If you look to the future and you're fearful because you're fearful of your humanity and you're fearful of your frailty and the way that you just might make stupid choices, God's like, yeah, I'm more aware of it than you are, but you need to know I'm merciful. That's not to encourage you to sin. It's to actually give you peace. 
So know that. But when it comes to the present, you need to know, I'm jealous. God is not jealous because it's a character flaw. What God is telling us in the simplest sense is that God is not indifferent or apathetic about his care for us, but he burns hot for us. So know that. As you live in the present, and I would consider it a gift, make your choices knowing that. From there, he moves us then into this, sec- this section here, starting in verse 41, where we see now Moses taking this step that is necessary. Here again, he gives us these cities, these cities of refuge. Now, understand there will be six. We're aware of that. He's already made that clear. But of the six cities, sorry about this, technical difficulties. See how close we get with that. Um, Of the six cities that we have, three of them are going to be on the east side of the Jordan. And that's important because those are the ones of the the people, if you remember, that's the two and a half tribes. Women again, the half tribe of Manasseh, that will be fighting and then coming back to the land. And it's interesting, though they can see the land that they already are going to possess is where the others do not yet. It is important to recognize two interesting things about this before we move forward. Why would God insert this here? We're just about to head into battle. We're just about to claim the land. Why here does God make mention at this point is the time to set up those cities? Because it was something they were responsible to do. And because God told them to do it, can I just say the best time to do what God tells you is now? And often what happens is we keep thinking, but there's this battle to be fought. fought. There's this situation in my life. And we keep rolling all of these things out before God as if God's going to go, oh, yeah, wow, I didn't realize that was going to happen. Well, you're right. Give it some time and then come back to this. God doesn't do that. He knows that if we're going to do this thing right, well, then we need to be responsible. So the two things, by the way, for what it's worth, first of all, remember these names, inaccessible spots. Why do you think someone calls something inaccessible spots? It's either one of two reasons. One is they're trying to hide something. Or more than likely, I know this is going to sound really revelationary, it's inaccessible. Got it? Heights, someplace far away, remote. Exile, a place where people would go to get alone, to be alone. What do they all have in common? They are tucked away and insulated. I remind you, this is the place where someone who accidentally kills someone can flee to. It's important to note that God made very sure that the places, and remember, God's going to pick them, where a man could go and be safe are going to be places where the avenger of blood will not ever happen to be in the neighborhood. That's the point. There are certain neighborhoods where just seeing a particular individual of a different race, of a different bracket, of one man or another, you just kind of know they're not part of the neighborhood. And these are neighborhoods so tucked away so that if you were to see someone from one side or the other, from the avenging family, from the Capulets, certainly you would know he was there for no good. And that actually is interesting because when I actually look at the Psalms, there's something beautiful when I read Psalm 91. By the way, the devil, you're probably aware of, quoted part of Psalm 91 when he told Jesus to throw himself off at the temple top. But understand, this is what it says in Psalm 91.9. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague... I'm going to try this again. Every time someone puts this on, it turns into a, a worm. So We're not going to do this the whole time. I just want you to know that. Again, it says, because you have... 
There we go. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. He shall not, he, I'm sorry, he shall give his angels his charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Listen to this again. Because you chose of all the places to live the refuge that God is and God alone is, nothing's going to be able to get at you. No evil shall befall you. No plague shall come near your dwelling. Why? Because you are in an inaccessible spot as far as the enemy is concerned. You are amongst the heights of a place that only God can put you. And you're in a place where only those who have sought exile in Christ could come. That's the point. And that's what, it, by the way, we're told in Hebrews 6.17. When it tells us that God determined to show, by the way, more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability, the, in other words, the unchangeableness, or the you can't appeal it, of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things that in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that was set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast. God makes clear to us that if Christ were your refuge, you'll be safe. It'll be very fundamental as we look at our text here in a moment and we'll see the theme of this. But the second thing is, other than the fact that we're very, very safe and tucked away in this refuge, and so to get it handled first before you get to your next battle. Many of you are familiar with the story of Gideon in Judges 6. We know him perhaps as the most fearful guy in Scripture, or one of the most fearful guys in Scripture. Every time God says, well, if you're scared, you can do this, he does it. If you're scared, go over by that camp for a moment and listen. He goes over by the camp and he listens. It's that kind of thing. But what's interesting is when God speaks to him, and he's not really sure if it even is the Lord. He prepares a meal with, by the way, broth that would be blood. And God says, pour that out over there. I don't want that. He's aware of the fact that God's keeping kosher here. He consumes the sacrifice, rises up. He says, I put a great calling on your life. And some of you, maybe if you're familiar with the story, where there is this guy threshing grain in a wine press, which, by the way, is a little bit strange considering the fact that you need a good wind to thresh. That breaks the parts of the edible parts of the wheat from the, the straw so when you throw it up the wind blows away the part that you wouldn't eat and the heavier part which you would eat falls to the ground a wine press is the opposite it's the farthest thing from a wind because you don't want anything blowing into your wine they're doing that because they're fearful of a group called the Midianites it's easy to remember Gideon versus Midian and when the Midianites would come what would happen is as they would thresh their grain the Midianites would wait till they did all the work and then they would go and steal all their food so Gideon is there, and it is kind of a bit of a funny situation, if you'll pardon me, because he's actually in the most windless place trying to thresh. So imagine, he's fearful, and he's hiding, and he's going, you know, trying to blow away the other parts of it. And an angel shows up, the angel of the Lord, and he says, Hail, mighty man of valor! Could you imagine what that would have been like for this man who was quite fearful? And he says, The Lord is with you. Gideon says, The Lord is with me. Why is all this going on? Why are we so beat up and picked on? Do you know the cyber bullies that I have to deal with? You know, the creditors and the Midianites. And, and he says, go in that power of yours. Maybe you go, what? What power of yours? I mean, Gideon in his fear lipped off to the angel of the Lord and he said, go in this power of yours. But remove Gideon's response for a second. This is what you have if you looked at the script of the angel of the Lord. Hail, mighty men of valor. 
The Lord is with you. Now go in that might of yours. What might is that? The Lord is with you. See, don't miss this. I kind of get the idea here that the angel of the Lord didn't even listen to Gideon's response. Have you ever had times where you said something and you wish you could just rewind? Aren't you thinking, well, there are times the Lord was like, I know you're going to say something stupid, so go ahead. Now let's get back to work. And that was kind of the situation. But in Gideon's situation, he's like, look, I'm going to use you. And Gideon's like, me? I'm the least of my least of my least. And that kind of thing is it's often the case. You get that. If the Lord were to say, I'm going to use you, by the way, to transform London, which one of you wouldn't go, how come me? Why me? As if God's like, what, why, what part of you? You're the tool. I'm the guy that's going to do it. When God tells Moses, I'm going to come down. Moses is like, yeah, and I'm going to use you. Wait a minute. What? Use me. He's like, but I'm coming down. I'm going to do it. I was just going to bring you along and use you. But me, who am I? Who are you? What part of this? What does, imagine if God were actually just being blunt. That's how we know God's not just an American. He'd be like, what difference does it make who you are? But he doesn't. He's like, well, who, who am I? And who are you? You can see God going, Ugh called him. He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know who he is. Let's start with something simple. What's in your hand? Stick. Good. Good place to start. Throw it down. It turns into a snake, of course. Didn't see that coming, did you? Please hear me in this. As God speaks to Gideon, and Gideon pulls that same who am I card, God says, listen, I want you to go now, and I want you to take that special cow that your dad set aside, and I want you to kill it. Then I want you to take that horrible, obscene image that the whole town comes over to worship, and I want you to cut it down. I want you to destroy that. It's in your, it's in your courtyard. Go and do all of that first. Gideon is fearful, and so he goes at night with his servants, which tells us that the boy has at least a little bit of money. So he goes and he takes his servants, and he has his servants do it at night. By verse 34 it says, And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Don't miss that. God's like, I want to use you. Claudia, I want to use you. Dari, I want to use you. Priscilla, I want to use you. You know, you know, it's like, listen, listen, listen. I want to use you, but first I want to clean your house. I want that house clean first. Dari, well, if, if your house isn't clean. Shante, if your house isn't clean. Jenny, if your house isn't clean. And God starts to do this great thing. Then what happens? Then what happens is, you wind up like Gideon even after all of that and starts building a special ephod and makes that the issue instead of God. So here, so here, understand, before we even go into this battle, let's make sure our house is clean. Let's get this right. And in this case, what's interesting is you need to start leaving some room for mercy for those that did something but not with the intent you would have imagined. Hear that again. Oh, they did something but not with the intent you would have imagined. Let me ask you, is there some form of place like that that needs to be built in your heart that's not there right now? The very mention of that person's name and you just go, and your teeth start hurting because you're gritting. God's like, I want to take you into battle, but let's start getting the... If I want to change the world outside of you, I better start by changing the world inside of you. Does that make sense? And what you find, by the way, is that if, if a soldier is going to go into battle, he needs complete peace inside that only God can give. Because there isn't going to be much peace on the outside when you're in the battle. You better have it there. 
Because if it's not there, then you're going to go down. So here in these few short verses, even to start us into this, we get to this text and he goes, look at, look at, look at. Let's get this right. Get these places built first. Then let's get into this. So they do. And then we get these verses from 44 to 49. Remember, and this was like where everything, there were all of these sort of moments where he tells us where they were beside this and this and with this much space. Do you remember all of that? It tells us, by the way, again, I remind you, that they were after Egypt, but they were still on the east side of the Jordan. They were opposite of Peor. They were in the land of Sichon. They were from Aror to Araba. And we go, yeah, 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 let's get over to chapter 5. Nah, not so quick. After Egypt means that they had been taken out of the land of slavery, but they haven't gotten to where God had called them yet. Hear me on that. You were out of the, you're out of the weeds, but you're not into the good. You're just better than you were before. And I guarantee you, every one of us could say that to some degree. We may not be where we were, but God has a place so much better than even where we're at at the moment. And that's where this is getting laid out. And it's important to recognize God did not reiterate the commandments or even give it the first time while they were still in slavery. That's like trying to teach a dying, a drowning man the backstroke. At that moment, he needs rescuing. Then you can start teaching him how to swim. God got them out of Egypt. Then he brought them the law so they wouldn't go back in. It was opposite of Peor. If you remember from Numbers 25, that was the place of their greatest failure the place where they went and intermarried with the Moabites, Moabite women, and then wound up serving their other gods, the place of the greatest decimation of their population up to this day. And it's important to know, God, in the midst of all of that, they can look and see over there when God starts to talk about faithfulness, they can remember that was the place where I failed in that and how huge of a deal that was. It's the land of Sihon, by the way, which is the land of victory. This was a land where we, this was a land of giants that God took down that we are currently standing in. We are in the momentum, by the way, of victory. But it's also from a land that is big, Aror, by the way, to Araba. It's big and it's vast. It's just not as big as God had planned yet. And maybe you're in a place and you could look and you could quote parts of Psalm 40 where he took you out of the horrible pit, out of the mire and the clay and set your feet upon a rock, upon a vast and wide land. And you look and go, this is wide and vast. And God goes, this isn't as wide and vast as I have for you. It's just bigger than you're used to. If you were raised in a flat in the center of the city and you moved, by the way, just up to sort of Hertfordshire, you would think you had a mansion until you saw what a mansion looks like. You think that that was huge until you see these guys that have their islands. <laughs> when Suzanne and I were in Malta, we, were, um, we went to one of the, with the Maritime Museum, because in the Maritime Museum they have the crossbar that, that was from a grain ship, a Phoenician grain ship. So arguably whether it was Paul's anchor from Axe or not, you know, it, it isn't like it says on there, Paul was here, right? I mean, it's, it's a big old metal piece that came from an anchor. I'm thankful for the fact they don't set it up as the whole thing. See, Paul's anchor. You know, it's, it's like could be or could not be. But we went just the same. And it was a really cool place. It's kind of tucked away, this little hidden town. And we're walking in. We're like one of 15 people in the whole town at the time, it seems like. And we get over to this area, and there's this bay. And you, you see in, in this bay, you walk and you realize really, really wealthy people dock here. And, I, and the first thing we did is we came around this corner is we saw these like 25-foot cabin cruisers. You know, these things, and they're really big. They're like two stories high. 
you know, and they're, you know, they're as long as from the sidewall to the sidewall. They're big. And you look at these things and you just know, man, that guy's got money. You know, and you see them come walking out and everything's been custom made for him. And you kind of see the crew that's in and they have to hire a crew for that. And you think, well, this guy probably thinks he's got to go. And then, by the way, let me just say, I'm, I'm never jealous of that kind of thing. I don't look and go, boy, I wish I had that because I wouldn't trade you in for a boat any day. So we're going, wow, this is pretty impressive. Then we went around another corner and you saw these things. I kid you not, they, they rivaled cruise liners. They were bigger, and I'm not exaggerating. They were bigger from the back of that to the front of that. They were three, four stories high. And I'm looking at these things, and I'm like, who in the world? This thing goes around the world. This thing could probably fly to Mars. And then it just made me chuckle because I realized, I'm like, dang it, those guys that pulled in in the first place, like, yeah, I got it going on. Check my two-story thing, right? And they go around, they go, oh, I got a dinghy. And I think about that in this text. Because there are a time when you were a drowning man and God put you on this big, beautiful thing and you're like, wow, this is good. And God's like, you know what? This is only big because you don't know there's bigger. And for some, you ever do this when you pray? You're like, you know, God, I, I don't know. Just Could you just maybe maybe make this day like not so miserable? Now you're like kind of asking, like, God, could you just maybe give me a couple floaties and I'll be good enough? And God is this amazing life for you. And I'm not talking about he wants you wealthy and driving Bentleys. No, if he does, use it for the Lord. But I'm not saying this. Certainly, and I can't say there's a blanket statement. That's not the case. But he does want to prosper you in the greatest ways of the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that only his spirit can give and that money can't buy. And so no matter who we are in this room, every one of us, from Taiwo to David to Bruno to Melissa to Naomi, whoever we are, God has a plan in our lives to be so much bigger than we can dream. And I don't care how creative you are, you couldn't have thought of the universe like he did. And so when he starts laying this out, he's like, look it, they're in a place that's better than they were, but it's not the place that I have for them. Because the place I have for them is a place of overflow and fruitfulness. But for us to do that, we better prepare first. And if we're going to prepare first, let me get you back to the law that set us apart. Does that make sense? So chapter 5. Moses called all Israel and he said to him, Hear, O Israel, the statutes, judgments in which I speak in your hearing today. Statutes, by the way, in chapters 4 to 6 will be mentioned at least 14 times. The word is chuch and means enactment. Judgments, mishpot, at least 9 times. Commandments, at least 28. Mitzvah, by the way. So that means somewhere in all of this, we're looking at over 51 different times in 3 different chapters these 3 words are used. I think it's kind of important. The Lord God in Moses' review, and the Lord God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Now, he didn't make it with our fathers. It may have looked like that, but God knew they were already going to fall, but he knew you were going to be there. I remind you, this was 38 years ago, and because it was 38 years ago, and everybody 20 years old and older died except three people. Moses, who's telling us this, and Joshua and Caleb. That means of that generation, three people remain. Three. That means the rest of us, if we heard this law, we were at oldest a teenager. Could you imagine if God says everyone 20 years old or older, they're not going to make it in, and tomorrow was your birthday, wouldn't you have been thankful? You're like, can I celebrate early? You're like, no, glad I didn't. Glad I didn't. And now here we are in this situation where God's like, listen, 
We're going to review this because you may have heard this, but you need to hear it from me. I cannot stress how important it is for you to hear directly the Word of God. Not just from me, from some teachers, from a TV or a radio program, from whatever it is. Please hear me in this. Back in Genesis, it's chapter 3. And in Genesis in chapter 3, if you remember, the enemy never speaks to Adam. He only speaks to Eve. And the first thing he says is, Did God... Where, did God really say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? By the way, never in here will he call him the Lord. That's, of course, important. Did God really say that? And she'll say, well, God actually said we could eat from all, but this one, we can't even touch this one. And at that point, he already knows she has secondhand information. He'll never speak to the man because man's heard directly from the Lord. But the girl has heard it from him. And she doesn't have the authority that he has, who is, by the way, next to her and not stepping in like he should. We read, by the way, Peter tells us that the enemy goes and he looks and he prowls, looking like a roaring lion for those he can devour. Well, what does he devour with? Can I say fangs of falsehood? And he'll say, well, did God really say this? Can I say... If the enemy were to try to do that to you, do not quote me. Do not quote anyone that's a PhD, QRST, HILNP, whatever it is. There is only one expert. You want to quote the Word of God? Go to God Himself. Get open that beautiful book that's in your lap or in your app. Because that's, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And he's fishing. Why do you believe what you believe? Could you give me scripture for it? Because if you can't, you might want to get into it to know it. Well, either way you want to. So here he is, he's going to the second generation. He goes, look, I don't want you to have heard this from your parents, the ones who didn't make it in. And can I say, there will be, amidst the family of Christianity, a whole batch of people that will know the wilderness and never know the place of fruitfulness. Because for that to happen, it will take faith and obedience. It will take fear, a reverence for God. And it will take sacrifice. You'll need to lay yourself down for himself. And I can tell you, that really thins out the pond. Do you really want to take counsel from people who aren't even going to go and live in the place God had for them? If a student is going to be like his teacher, do you know those who are dwelling in the overflow? Those who are living fruitful lives in Christ? Man, attach to them, please. So he tells us here, remember when it was that we were there and I stood between you guys, but in all of that, God spoke. You need to hear this and please prove me wrong. You'll have a hard time doing it, by the way. The two texts for the Ten Commandments are going to be here and back in Exodus 20. But I challenge you, if you've got your... And again, here's one of the places you could quote from, our movies. I remember what it was like. It was Charlton Hess, I mean Moses, and he was up on the mountain. And everyone else was hiding in their tents. The Ten Commandments, hear me, hear me, were spoken in the hearing of every person. 
It wasn't like Moses was up there having a private interview at this moment and he brought it down. And that's what he even says here. He says, when God spoke the Ten Commandments, every one of us heard it. And it freaked them out so much that they said, oh, you know what, that's enough for us. From this point on, you're going to have to step in. You do the rest of it. And by the way, when we get to that point, and we're almost there, we'll see that God says they're right, but that doesn't mean that it's a good choice that they're making. And then he bames. Oh, I really wish. Which tells me, by the way, that just because God wants something doesn't mean he's going to get it. So listen. He gets to these commandments now. Can you remember some of you back in your teen years when God spoke to you like this? This is how the Ten Commandments start. Verse 6. I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And by the way, I'll compare a little bit. Both with Exodus 20 and here, it starts exactly the same word for word. God does not want to lay out these Ten Commandments without first letting you know fundamentally that this is about a relationship. If you don't get the relationship aspect of it, well, you will actually look at it as the Ten Laws. This is something that I've been debating even in my own household because without a relationship, a rule or a standard is just a law and you'll do as little of it as necessary to make sure that you don't break the law. And you have to be motivated by punishment, unfortunately. If you have no relationship, then it's like, well, how much of that do I really have to do to technically do it? And if I don't, what's the consequences? Does that make sense? So you know this. You see the speed limit, those of you who are actually driving vehicles versus just praying because the bus driver is a maniac. And you look and you see that sign and you start thinking, hmm, Exactly how many kilometers a mile can I go, or kilometers an hour, can I go beyond that and not get a ticket? Or, you know, those moments where you're driving and you're, which tells you there's a camera, which tells you now punishment will be inflicted if you actually break the law. And all of a sudden, a whole new mindset hits you, like a pseudo-obedient mindset. Oh, yeah, I better get to that speed limit. Well, that's because we have no relationship with this government, in, in essence. And I'm not trying to rally up some from an anti-political movement. The point is, because we don't know the people, so you kind of do what you have to. But every relationship you have has laws with it. And some of them are spoken, some of them aren't spoken. But when you talk to somebody and they confide in you, you kind of know there's an unspoken law that you probably shouldn't put that on your Facebook page. You are aware of that, Right? You won't hear what I just heard, yeah. And if you haven't, if that isn't your mindset, make that clear to us before we tell you something candid. Hey, when someone says, oh, I really like that, and it's near Christmas. Now, it all depends on the person, but sometimes you know they're doing that because they're really trying to let you know it's near Christmas, and I really like that. But for some, you know, we're just kind of hearing. We go, oh, note to self, that's something that you like, or that's something they don't like. And you know that only intensifies in a romantic relationship. If they're like, you know, I loathe spicy things. I'm not going to take my wife to like a hot wing eat off. I'll win before we get to the door. You start looking and you go, okay, that's important. And by the way, I love what God says about David. And many of you are familiar with it when he says that what made David better than Saul was he was a man after my own heart. 
I love the fact that what God qualified him as better is what he was after. Did you get that? When we think about in this room right now, what are you after? Are you after God's blessing? After God's glory? After God's prosperity? After God's what? And imagine God were to look in this room and God knows. He sees the hearts. And it's like, what would he see? What would rise up? Because now we can think visually because of all the movies we see that are like, Everest. Really wants a mate. You know, really wants their bills paid. And you know, that kind of thing. Just wants a friend. Where do you find that in any of us? The place where he's like, you know what? This guy surely wants my heart. More than my glory, more than my stuff, more than my blessings, more than anything. He just wants my heart. What would that look like? What he hates, we'd hate. What he loves, we would love. What he loathes, we would loathe. We wouldn't buddy up with an enemy of God if we loved him. God's looking for that. So as he gets into these, and by the way, I don't even know if we'll get through them all. We'll see, but can I start with this? God's like, before I lay these things out, can I remind you, this is a relationship-based protocol. This isn't a set of laws to get you anywhere. I already pulled you out of Egypt, and that's already been clear. Before we got to this point, I've already rescued you. I didn't say, do these things, and I'll get you out of Egypt. He goes, look, it starts with, you realize that you were bought with a price, as Corinthians tells us. So we belong to him. If we're bought, we're purchased, right? And he starts by saying, look, it, before we even start laying this out, can I remind you? I pulled you out to be mine. And all of this is going to revolve around it. Does that make sense so far? When I look at the first four of them, and of course there's ten, but when I look at the first four, they revolve entirely around this. And this is the part that's really impacted me the most. Because the rest of it then, of course, works from the overflow of that. Please hear me. As he moves into this, he starts by saying this. Have no other gods before me. That's exactly as he says in the first one, in Exodus 20. The second one, by the way, from verses 8 to 10, exactly like it was in Exodus 20 as well. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of anything. I don't care what it is. In heaven above, on earth below, if it's in the sea or it crawls around or whatever, I don't care what it is. Because I'm jealous. The third one, verse 11, says, don't take my name in vain. Because I won't hold you guiltless for that. And then the fourth one in verse 12 through 14 and actually 15, if you will, is observe the Sabbath. Interesting, the last time that he said it, he said, remember the Sabbath. Don't forget the Sabbath. Now he says, don't just forget it. Don't just not forget it, but do it. Ironically, do the not doing of the Sabbath. Do rest. And keep it holy, adding as the Lord God has commanded you. Now, now please hear me in this. Let's put it into perspective for a moment, if I could. Let's say that Jeffrey has fallen head over heels for a girl named Shaniqua. She's a jazz singer from Cleveland. And as, he, as he's fallen for her, she's had some pretty fancy suitors. She's had some guys because she's beautiful, because she has this wonderful voice, because she's extremely talented and happens to be six feet tall, which, of course, also appeals to Jeffrey. Um, 
she has had a lot of guys that have come and sung their song and did their dance for her. Does that make sense so far? And she says, well, hey, if we're going to be in this relationship, can I make some things clear before we start? Sure. What's that? It goes, well, here's the first of them. I'd like to be your only one. Is that fair? I don't want you to be like, you know what? I was thinking of getting 365 girlfriends, and then it'll be very easy. You'll be March 16th, you know, or whatever, you know. But don't worry, honey. I'll get 31, but the good news is I'll put you low in the number you'll get every month. The 31, 31st girl, she'll have some trouble. Well, that wouldn't seem very sincere, would it? Do you realize? And we'll make the first four. If you didn't remember all ten, but you remember the first four, I really think you're going to be... I mean, I'd rather remember all ten, but let's start with this. Number one is, I want to be your only one. How's that? And that's what God's saying. Look at, for all, I mean, nobody else delivered you. No one else pulled you out of Egypt. Nobody else got you out of that addiction. Nobody else filled that emptiness. Nobody else gave you that peace when the whole world was spinning. Nobody else met you at that place where you were so desperate and so empty and so helpless. Nobody else got you there but me, out of there but me. And I want to be your only one. You know what's the weirdest part? Is that that's a commandment. So imagine, again, Shanique was sitting down with Jeff and she goes, you know what? It's a rule. But it would be wise, wouldn't it? For her to say, hey, look it, if you really are what you say you are, and you're going to be my man, then this needs to be the case. Fair enough? I don't know if you're aware of this, but my wife is honestly the first girl I ever asked out. I mean, I've lived in kind of a... Anyways, you don't even need to know. This is like, sorry, it's the life I lived before that, but... Um, First girl I'd ever, ever asked out in my life. And it was funny because, you know, when I, when I met her, she had kind of, she had come from some pretty rough situations. Uh, some guys that had been, by the way, kind of like Minchinikwa's story, you know, she, she, had, she had been through it. And the guys had sung their song and did their dance, and then I show up, you know. I mean, the four guys that had suited her, one was an athlete, one was sort of a down-the-earth passionate guy, one was a social guy, and one was a thin, blonde musician. They had nothing. Whatever I had has been spent and misused by someone else. And so I give her, and God's like, I want you to call her. I'm like, uh, all right. Now, I'm looking through Scripture, and I'm not getting anything, you know. How to ask out, you know, excuse me, but I think that rib is mine. You know, it's just not really in Scripture. So, sorry. So I call her up, and I'm like, hey, um, this is Tony. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering, would you like to go for a walk on the beach? No. Because you're not. Now, see, up to that point, you give you, ladies, I'll give you a little insight into the psyche of men. Guys, forgive me if I'm blowing our cover here. You just assume they'd say yes. I mean, at least that's what you tell yourself. Oh, they'd probably say, they probably would have said yes. I won't ask, and they probably would have said yes. Well, this is, this is destroying my entire facade. I'm like, the only girl, I'm zero for one in my entire life. I'm like, oh. oh, I know, I know. Maybe she just doesn't like for a walk on the beach. It's cold. It's like, you know, okay. Do you want to go see a movie? No. Dang. And then I'm like, oh, I get it. This was to humble me. I get it. So this was, it wasn't about asking her out. This was about, this is about you showing me that I am not the man. Got it. Now I'm trying to gnaw off my arm with any dignity left. Oh, oh okay. Um, 
God bless you. Right? Phone is off of my ear. Back in the back in those days when you held it like a like a dumbbell. Remember those things? It's like came out on both sides and like, huh? And it was like a string. Well, anyways, I'm like, okay, thank you. And I'm about to hang up. And all of a sudden, she, I hear her go, wait, 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 wait. I'm like, oh, there's more of this. Like, Hello. She goes, like, you're a nice guy, and I like you. And we could be friends, and that's totally cool. But if you're going to step forward into this thing, it's going to end in marriage. Okay, I was better with a no. <laughs> Does that make any sense at all? Right? Because I was like, okay, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. Now all of a sudden I sound like a pubescent boy. I'm like, ah, um, uh, God told me to do this. I'm just trying to obey him. I can use your help, okay? Well, you could guess where it ended up. And ladies, learn from that. But the point wasn't, you know, it wasn't like no, no, all or nothing. It was like, hi, it was like, oh, freezing, freezing, Yakut, Siberia, oh, we're in the tropics. No, it was none of that at all. It was like, hey, no, 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 I don't want you even playing your game with me. It's going to be, it's going to be, I'm going to be your one or nothing. And that's beautiful. And that's, and God's the same. Understand, that's the first commandment. I want to be your only one. Does that make sense? Okay, number two. I want to be your only thing, too. One, I want to be your only one. Two, I want to be your only thing, too. Thing. Yeah, I don't want you to make something and worship it or go and find something and worship it and go and smell something and worship it and go and taste something and worship it and I want you to go chase after something and worship it. It's not worth it because it's still I'm still not the only one. Now, that makes sense to me because I know a lot more people that commit adultery with other things than with other people. The relationship seems like it gets a little cool and so they run into work. They run into their job, they run into their hobby, their ambition, their sport, their talent, their craft, through whatever. And we all can do it with the Lord very easily. Can you see how this is all about relationship? He's like, look at I got God didn't do that with God isn't like, you know what, I'm gonna play the field and let's see how long you want to suffer and you just be like, look at I made you mine. I'm pulling you out. I want to be your only one, and I want to be your only thing, too. Does that make sense? Number three, when you have two and you add one, if you guys are talking and you bring up my name, could you make it different than anyone else's? Wouldn't that make sense? They're like, oh, that girl hot. And that girl, oh, that girl got that. And then it's like my wife. And then that girl. You know, it's like, look, at, I don't want to be like anyone else. I want to be unique in your heart. I want to be unique in your eyes. And I want to be unique in your mouth. That's the idea of taking the Lord's name in vain, isn't it? Vain, by the way, just means empty, worthless. It's like, I just don't want my name to be like everyone else. And this is why I think God's really offended by that whole Christ is my homeboy thing. I get the idea behind it. But please hear me in this. I'd like to bring you into the boat of faith for a moment. The boat of faith is always going to make you look like an idiot in the academic community and make you look like a radical in the mild community. And this is why. Because faith actually accepts paradoxing. Two things that should never be put together, but somehow they fit because God's bigger. 
And the classic response will normally be like, well, that's convenient. Someone says, explain to me the Trinity, how God could be three and how God could be one. And we're like, hmm, let's see, there's like the egg and the yolk and this, or there's like steam and ice. And but in the end of it all, you're trying to take an infinite God and explain it in something that's finite. Right? Like imagine if you've lived in the desert your entire life. You have a teaspoon of water and someone says, explain to me an ocean. And you say, a lot of this. That's not it, is it? Where's the roar of the waves? Where's the weather patterns? And the idea of being completely soaked and the gravity and the depth when you get down there, the pressure. There's so much more to that. Explain to me the universe because we're breathing air. It's infinite in comparison. And the beauty about God is that faith says, I don't have to reconcile them. I can believe both, even if they don't seem to match. Does that make sense? How could God be totally in charge, but man have a choice? Faith, that's how. He's big enough for that. How could God be totally holy, and yet totally commune with man? You say, well, the blood of Christ. Sure. But in the end of it all, faith. Because faith actually takes a perfect and holy God that never ceases to be holy and totally fellows with a perfectly nasty human being like me. To the blood of Christ that washes me. So Christ being my homeboy does not do that. Does that make sense? He's totally holy and will never not be holy. He never ceased being holy. And we need to represent. They go, well, then that'll make God inaccessible. Well, that's what we present the other side. And then we say, I would like to bid in your faith and put the card on the table and say, if you're willing to spend your trust on this, you will never be sorry. But he still wants to be with you anyways. How? Because he loves you. Well, I don't get that. You don't have to. God will convince you. That's his job. It's his spirit's job. Does that make sense? So listen. I want to be your only one. I want to be your only thing too. I want my name to be unique. I want to be different when you talk about me. Three. Does that make sense so far? Y'all with me on this? Wow, this is really rough. Ten commandments. Are we going to walk out of here browbeaten? I'm not. Number four. Can we make sure we have time together? Isn't that what the Sabbath is? Here's the thing that I think God, well, I'm sure God knows that we don't, is that we kill ourselves with best intentions we never follow through on, but we mean it. And this is one of those places. You ever see something? I, I, I used to have one of these on my desk. It was a circle, and it said the word, it just had the letters T-U-I-T in it. Big circle. T-U-I-T. And so, and I would hand it to people. I'm like, oh, I'll do that when I get around to it. I'm like, here's a round to it. Did you get it? Yeah, that was the idea. And the point is, is there's so many things where we're like, oh, if I could just get around to it. And the one is being with people that are important to you. Ironic, because if they were really important to us, don't you think we'd make time? But you know, he's like, well, because I know they love me, because they, I'm sure they know that I love them, I'll take care of everything else, and whatever's left over, whatever's left over, I love you so much. Here are my leftovers. Really? Where in Scripture does God say that? He goes, listen, how about this? I'm going to make the appointment. It's going to be a whole day. Imagine that. Could you imagine giving God a whole day once a week? But that's one-seventh of my life. Yeah, guess how much of God, of God he gave you? He's like, you know what? I'm going to set the appointment so you don't have to worry about getting around to it. And on this day... 
This is what I want you to do. Ready? Nothing. Be with me. Let's not make it about doing. Let's make it about being. Just be with me. You don't have to memorize the book of Leviticus today. You don't have to go out and do a thousand million other things. I created you to be with me. I got you out of Egypt to be with me. Just be with me. Please hear me. You don't work for God. He works through you. We don't give ourselves to people for God. We give ourselves to God even for people. And so please hear me on this. Those first four are pretty simple. I got you out to be with me, so I want to be your only one. Fair enough? I got you out from the land of all these other things you could look and touch and feel that were, that were impotent to help you in any way because I want to be your only thing too. Hey, your only thing, think about what your identity is. Are you the athlete, the dancer, the musician, the singer, the, you know, whatever it is, the brain, the beauty, the bronze, the humor, the kind? What's your thing? Is your thing your race, your age, your income, your strata, your postcode? That's for the world. You're aware of that, right? Because I want to be your thing. So Lorena's thing is Jesus. Lauren's thing is Jesus. Gina's thing is Jesus. Anita's thing is Jesus. Lamara's thing is Jesus. And David's thing is Jesus. Claudia's thing is Jesus. And you know what the great thing is? When everyone is together, people don't look and go, wow, you guys have this in common, and it's volleyball. You know, whatever. The thing you have in common is Jesus. And that's what people need to see. Because it's your thing. I want to be your only one. I want to be your only thing. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean I have to give these things up? No, actually, they actually now, it's this way. Jesus is like, I, you've got a universe. I want to be the sun, not a moon that orbits your planet. And if it doesn't fit into orbit, we send it out. If it fits into orbit, we'll put it in. And this is what I've learned. If everything is willing to die at the cross of Christ, the only things that get resurrected are the things he wants. So I lay it down and say, if you want it, you can have it. If you don't want it, kill it and let it stay there. If you want to resurrect it, may it be entirely to orbit you now. Get it? You're only one. You're the only one. You're the only thing. So in the end, it won't be like, what a great knitter Shirley was. Like, that's what you want on her tombstone. Priscilla, the way she could make ravioli. It's, it'll be... When I look at her, this thing about Jesus, this thing about Jesus. Because we are so different, collectively, we get a better view of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? If he is our thing. Hey, so you're one of those people that when somebody says Jesus' name, isn't it true to hear Jesus' name more in public right now is more commonly by someone who doesn't know him than someone who does? Why don't they say that about Muhammad or Buddha? Stub their toe. Oh, Buddha! He's dead. He's not going to hear it anyways. But man, I, I'm I'm one of those few people that I'm like, well, since you brought him up, of course they're going to look at me like I'm like I'm mental. But it's all right because it's like, look, it. Let's have one of two things here. Either you could stop mentioning my Savior falsely, 
or I'm going to follow you around and keep telling them about it until you know them. That's terrorism, maybe. But I want you to know them. So as we get into the others, by the way, and we'll rule through these fairly quickly, can I just say, if we can't get those first four straight, none of the others are going to matter. Because the others are now protocols. Just look at, by the way, the rest of it is, I've adopted you. Get along. We'll start with a family. We'll talk about the bitterness of your heart. We'll make sure marriage is solid. We'll treat each other right. Does that make sense? So the first four again. What was the first one? Only one. I want to be your only one. What was the second one? Only thing two. What was the third one? Make my name unique. What was the fourth one? Spend time with me. I've set aside the time. Spend it with me. And I don't want to think about how many times I've stood God up. It's like I'm here. I'm waiting. Anyways. In this last one, by the way, in number four. It does say, by the way, not your ox, your donkey, or any other thing. By the way, because that he adds because... He wants to make sure that you're aware of the fact that you're not to work anything on that day. And by the way, part of it is that your male servant and your female servant don't overwork them on Sabbath so you can get the time off because what are you saying? That they're less important than you are or that God wants you but not them. Verse 15, notice it says, hey, remember you were a slave first. Don't forget that. In other words, take care of those that are slaves now because you used to be one yourself. Do you know how easy it is sometimes for people to condemn the very pool that they came from? Not just the pool, but the people. Look at them go, what a bunch of idiots, though. You were just the same idiot not that long ago. Where's the compassion? And if God brought you out, why won't he bring them out? And here becomes the fundament for the rest of it. Look at verse 16. Go ahead and look at it with me, please. Honor your father and mother. That's not the point, although we'll get on that for a second. As the Lord your God has commanded you, that'll be unique. And then it says that your days may be long and then it may be well with you in the land in which the Lord your God has given you. Do you see that? That will be fundamental for the rest of this and next chapter. Please hear me in this and we'll bring this around. There are two aspects of this. One is that he wants you to stay in the land, which tells me that, look at here is where we were, this land of bondage. We're kind of in this place of wilderness. Here's a place of fruitfulness and overflow. And he says, I want you to stay there. When you get there, I want you to stay there. Obedience is going to be necessary. Making that relationship with me necessary to stay there. Does that make sense? This is my house. He goes, but you don't have to stay there. You can totally run off and get selfish again, and you can totally run off and, and commit spiritual suicide. And probably a good portion of the church still may applaud you because you could still make it look like you're being responsible. I'm going to give God my leftovers, but I've got to get this done, and I'm going to do this, and I've got to do this kind of work, and I'm going to do this thing, and I've got to pursue this thing, and I'm going to tiss my dream, or whatever it is over here. But in the end of it all, God, you're telling God, you wait here, I'm going to go do that. Because I'd really like you to be here forever. Maybe you've seen somebody and they were at a state at one point where they were overflowing in Christ. The name of Jesus made their heart burst. I mean, and they just emanated the light of Christ and the joy of the Lord and all of that. And, and all of a sudden, and then you see them in this place where you're like, why in the world are they here now? It's amazing how you could convince yourself that an inch off is okay. But just go ahead and turn the wheel just an inch 
on your steering wheel and then just keep stepping on the gas and see what that does for you. Actually, don't, please. But we'll do that all the time spiritually. And people go, oh, I appreciate it. You know, I can see you're putting things in the proper proportion now. You're going to make sure you get that thing and make sure you get that job and make sure you do this thing. And I'm not telling you, you know, live off of welfare and all that. What I'm saying is make sure the Lord is first. And so what happens is that somewhere in it, you could be in this. And God's like, look, if you do this with me and you really make me that relationship, I am your one. I am your one thing. And my name means something different to you. And if we have that time together, we'll stay here. Or you can walk away from this and just be a really miserable Christian. You can go back into the wilderness if you want. But would you really want to? But it wasn't just that you would, days would be long here. Did you notice that? But the second thing is that it would be well with you. And he'll say that at least five different times between this and the next chapter. And he goes, I don't want you just here and to stay here. I want you to enjoy it. I'd really like you to enjoy this place. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says, you know what, don't tell people who are rich in regards to money not to get haughty or proud about it because, well, yeah, because it's temporary. He goes, but rather to delight in the Lord who gives us all things to enjoy. Hey, there are groups of guys that are in ministry and all they talk about is how miserable life is. And I, can I just dare say, I don't relate to them. I don't get it. Now, maybe they were miserable before that point or whatever, but it's like there's somewhere in all of this. I can't reconcile where it says in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And notice that's how this chapter is going to end. I want this to be well with you. I want you to be the most stoked people on the planet. I want everybody else to be jealous of you. So they go, what is it you have? And the enemy will be like, you know what? You should be miserable with everyone else. And you can listen to him remind you he lies. That's his native tongue. So look at you want to honoring your father and mother first and foremost, by the way, the point is to put a high price on them. If you're in their house, then you obey them. If you're not in your house, then make sure you take care of them when they get older. That's honoring them. Well, not murdering. Jesus would, by the way, tell us as he raises the ante on that. If you have bitterness in your heart towards another, you're already fostering the seed of that. Committing adultery says if you look at another woman to lust. And by the way, you get that. I've learned that. This is a generation where it seems to be pretty equal among men and women these days. Stealing, lying. And then it says, don't covet. Notice in verse 21. I find it interesting as he compares the two between this one and and Exodus 20. The last time it was don't covet your neighbor's house and then his wife. Here it's the other way around. But then after all, they don't have houses right now, do they? So I think they're looking more at their neighbor's wife. It doesn't matter what it is. And by the way, the other thing he adds is his field. But in the end of it all, stop looking at somebody else and wish you had what they do. Because if you do that, guess what you're leaving behind? The one who satisfies you. You're like, Lord, I know you're really satisfied, but if I could just get that big iPhone 6, could you imagine how goofy that must sound to the Lord? Verse 22, he says, look, when the Lord spoke, he didn't add anything or take anything away from it, which, of course, I remind you in chapter 4, he says, don't add or take away from my word. This is when you heard this, you freaked out. And you said, you know what, Moses? If we hear this, we're going to die. So why don't you just risk it and go? Why don't you speak? And we'll wait here and listen to God's response. And we're at verse 29. Oh, that they had a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commands always. You know why? Because it would be well with them. There's that statement again. Half of the times that that's mentioned in Scripture will be in these, these chapters. 
Yeah, I really wanted to be. Because God's like, I don't want you to be miserable unless you're running from me. I want it to be well for you. I want you to be overflowing and full of joy and rich in me. But you're only going to find it in me. And so when they're like, you know what? Notice what the people are saying. You know what, Moses? We'll take it secondhand. And that's the generation that's going to die in the wilderness. Do you see it? God's like, you know, oh, that they really would reverence me. Oh, that they really would listen to me. Oh, that they really would obey me. Can you almost hear God's broken heart in that? Because I can hear it when I hear him speak to me. It's like, you know, I really wish you reverenced me like you could. I'd love it if you just listened to me. And when I said something, it was, it was just law because our relationship was that important. Oh, that you would truly do that. Because I want it to be well with you. But for it to be well with you, the greater your surrender, the greater your joy. So I'll tell you what, Moses. Come on up and speak with me. And make sure of this, verse 32. Be careful to do as I tell you. Don't go to the right. Don't turn an inch to the left. Don't turn an inch to the right. But walk in my ways. Notice, don't just sit in them. But no matter where you go, this is going to be the case. Verse 33. Which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land in which you shall possess. If God could have his way, you would live in the land of overflow every breath of your life. And the choice isn't his now. He has granted us that as an option. The choice is ours. When Joshua speaks to the people before they take the land, he says in 115 about those three tribes that are going to go back to the east side of the Jordan. He says, go and fight. And when you've won the battles, then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it. God says in Psalm 26, 7, and actually David's speaking with this. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. That's that refuge. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your pleasures. For in you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Listen. God wants you to have such a joy that everything in this material world that people are chasing after, that may give them a hint of it for a brief glimpse, brief second, will realize what you have doesn't fade. And this is the way it works. Maybe you've been at that place. Maybe you've stood there and said, you know, that just seems like too much. I don't know. It's scary. I'm going to have to leave some things behind. This is going to totally change things. Yeah, it is going to totally change things. It better. Imagine Jesus talking to the Father about redeeming you. 
and saying, you know, if I go down there and clothe myself in flesh and live as a human being, tempted in every way, yet without sin, and die on a cross to redeem Dare, to redeem Chelsea, to redeem Sam, well, that's going to change a lot of things. It's going to change everything. Heaven's going to get a lot more crowded. And that's what he wants. But he chose it. See, I remind you, this whole thing started because every man is a slave to sin. Jesus says, if you sin, you're a slave to it. That's how it starts. We all start out in our Egypt. But God, in his infinite love for you and me, sent Jesus to die on the cross so that all of our sins could be properly paid for. All of our sins. Nobody else did that for you. And he died on the cross, just like Scripture promised, for your sin and mine was buried and rose again, just like Scripture said, to offer you a new life outside of that place. And if you say yes to his offer, then he pulls you out of that land of slavery, out of the hand of the enemy, and he pulls you into his arms. And he says, now that you're mine, now that you're mine, can I be your only one? Can I be your only thing too? Can my name mean something to you different than anyone else's? Can we have time that's uniquely ours? And then, let's build families where a father and a mother are respectable and the children respect them, honor them, put a price on that. Interesting, in the book of Malachi, when God starts speaking about what revival looks like, one of the first things he says is, I'll turn the heart of the fathers to their children and children of their fathers. One of the things you see in any godless community is a fatherless community. Would you agree that London is, in general, a fatherless community? Even if they are in the house, they're not necessarily fathers in the house. God says that should never be the case in the church. And then once that's the case, let's deal with bitterness. Let's get rid of that. So there's no seed of murder. And let's get let's set our affections and focus them so that there is no such thing as adultery. By the way, first and foremost between us and him and then with each other, the way it should be, between a husband and a wife. There, aren't, there isn't any competition. Let's be honest. There's much more spiritual pornography out there for you to grab a hold of that. No one will even criticize. And if we looked at it that way, we would see how horrible it is. It's just trying to throw out a whole bunch of other options of quick satisfactions, which aren't even satisfying, compared to the one thing that should take commitment. He goes, I don't want that. So let's get that right. And then, no more, no more stealing, no more lying, and no more looking around to see what they have to see how you're going to be complete with it. He goes, if you're willing to do that with me, let's get to that land. Let me take you in. You're going to follow me. I'm going to be, if you're going to be with me, I'm going to carry you in. I'm going to keep you in. That's what this is about. So as we go to prayer now, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you that choice today. So you can say yes to this one who died on the cross and rose again to be your personal Lord and Savior. But know this, now that you know that when you're saying yes, you are saying yes to a God who's saying, I want to be your only one. And maybe you have said yes to Jesus many years ago or not, but maybe you realize today, whoa, wait a minute, this really needs to be an all-encompassing, complete universe change. Good! Then I've done my job. 
Well, then let's make the choice. And can I just say it this way? The choice of saying I do, like with my wife, 25 years ago, we said, look at, I say I do. What I'm saying is I do make the choice to say I do all the time from this point forward. Not just once. I'm like, oh, I said it back then. That's good enough. We said, look, at, we've made two commitments. The day that we were married, we said, one, we would never separate, and two, that we would enjoy that. And I look at this and I realize where that came from. Like, let's never separate. Let's enjoy that. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. The privilege today of being able to turn our hearts to you and say, Lord, we need you. And I recognize today, Lord, in this room, that we may be in all kinds of state of spiritual repair or disrepair. And on this day, when we're going to sup together as believers, to celebrate as family, the one thing we have in common, a God who has redeemed us and adopted us, well then, Lord, do not let us today be people who play games with you. Any game we try to play with you is a losing one. So I pray today, Lord, for everyone in this room, myself included, that today we would make that stand and say, Lord, today I want to make you my only one. I want to make you my only thing too. I want your name to be different from any other name. And I want time unique for you. Just for you. And in that then, teach me how to be a family person. Teach me how to forgive. Teach me how to be faithful to you and to others. Teach me how, Lord, to, to not covet somebody else's stuff or to want to, not to connive to take it or to lie, but to find my satisfaction in you. It starts with making you my only thing and it ends with making you my satisfaction. And I want to be in that place of fruitfulness always not just in and out like living some kind of pendulum lifestyle that I would live with you the way I should in a place of overflow and fruitfulness oh Lord please make me so and may I enjoy it may every breath of my life be one where I celebrate the life you've given me And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've never or you're not sure if you've ever given your life to Jesus, accepted his gift. As I pray this prayer, listen. And at the end of it all, listen, at the end of it all, all I'm asking for is a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Those are my words. No, let that prayer be mine. And here's the prayer. God, I come to you broken. I come to you faulty. I come to you dirty with my own guilt, shame, and sin. But that doesn't intimidate you. It doesn't frighten you. You came to earth and died on the cross, Jesus, so that all of my guilt could be properly punished. You buried and rose again. And you've given me that choice now to accept that gift, and I say yes. Jesus, to you as my ransom and my Savior, but I also recognize today as my Lord that you would truly be the master of my life. I recognize it's a bit scary to hand over my life like this, but Lord, let me not hand it over with strings attached, but Lord, to to let you be the artist and to reinvent me in the ways that bring you pleasure and make me a blessing to others.
yourself. I give you me, confessing Jesus, you as my Savior and Lord, my ransom, my master. So here I am. I'm yours, Jesus, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.